0: People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turine Productions. This is Rodney Trudgeon welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note. This week we're going to be talking about a rather curious subject, a book that's been published called Snook on the Couch – by Robin Emsley. Now, Robin Emsley is a professor of psychiatry at Stellenbosch University, the Faculty of Medicine and Health Sciences, Cape Town, South Africa. He holds the Sarah Turoff Chair for Schizophrenia Research. He is an internationally acclaimed researcher in the field of neuroscience of psychiatric disorders and is the author of over 300 scientific publications. Now, this is his first non academic publication. And just a little footnote here says he is an aspirant serious fisherman. Robin, welcome to People of Notes. I think my first question to you has to be, why have you as a psychiatrist written a book on snook and called it On the Couch? Okay, well, it's actually quite a complicated story. But
1: um, about eight years ago, um, our family... Uh, bought a uh, a beach house down on the west coast near St Helena Bay and um, that was the first time that I came face to face with this fish called a snook really I mean I'd grown up uh, knowing a bit about it but never really experiencing it and um, it fascinated me the fish just its appearance and the fact that so many people on the west coast um, it was a central part of their life in terms of catching it and eating it and they all love snook. So we tried the snook and uh, didn't love it. <laughs> so um, that was one of the things but uh, just the appearance of the snook was the first thing that interested me and then I started taking photographs and I went down to the Lena Bay harbour when the snook were running and I found that the snook people the people who catch the snook are actually just as interesting as the fish so uh, I kept on taking photographs every year when the snook were running and uh, I thought well this is really something that should uh, go into a book and that's what I started working on and then I realized that Um, there was a lot more to it than just the superficial catching of the fish and the people and a lot of ideas and contemplations came through which I realized needed text so the text came as an afterthought and the text started around the fish and eating the fish and it moved on to the wonderful characters uh, the snook people on the west coast who, who catch the snook And then it moved beyond that and into my own field uh, of psychiatry, uh, neurobiology, and uh, it just flowed spontaneously, I think, um, and trying to look at this animal um, through the eyes of a psychiatrist, of a neuroscientist, and... um, just providing some of my life experiences and it was a wonderful uh, process uh, for me it was it's the first non-scientific book i've written i'm not a natural writer and um but uh, it took me a long time but that's basically how it happened
0: may i say you say you're not a natural writer and i've not read any of your academic stuff but um certainly reading this book Not only did I discover it was a very pleasant narrative to read through, but I also picked up a very quirky sense of humour, and sometimes maybe one thinks a psychiatrist might not have the sort of sense of humour that you bring up here, because there were many times that I had a good laugh and smile at your comparison of the snook to human behaviour and to humans and their lust for live animals and killing them and eating them. So the book does have a sort of... It's by no means, when I first saw it, Robin, I thought it was yet another recipe book, because you also <laughs> say in the book how many recipe books there are. Until I started reading it, I thought, gosh, this is a sort of psychological study of the Snook, the Snook people, and even us, us people who eat or don't eat Snook. Would you agree with all that? Absolutely. And yes. are you glad it turned out like that?
1: Yes, I am. So um, the Snook became the metaphor for the uh, the things that I was thinking when... Um, when looking at the the snook and the and the catching of the snook and um from my own perspective so um i uh these days i'm a researcher um specifically researching schizophrenia which is a very serious psychiatric disorder but one of the central components of schizophrenia is impairment of insight of self awareness Uh, and of ways of interacting with the environment. So these are the issues that I address in the book, Uh, and I've tried to do it in a way that's accessible to uh, non-psychiatrists, non-neuroscientists. The man in the street. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And as you say, um, I've done it in a light-hearted way, um, it's actually dealing with a very serious, somber topic.
0: Yes, that's what I discovered yeah, as well. Yeah.
1: But I thought that um, naturally a, a nice way of dealing with that is is using humor, and uh,
0: that's the approach that I took. <laughs> right, okay. Now, I want to find out, I mean, one of your chapters is called The Soul of the Snook, which I thought was going to be some sort of lecture about the history of the snook and its evolving and it's absolutely not um, parallels human life and all that but let's have one of your pieces of music first Stranger on the Shore by Acker Bilk tell me a little bit about why you've chosen this
1: well perhaps I should start by saying that I'm um, I'm a music enthusiast but not an expert and um, whenever I'm a Uh, confronted with a topic, I like to analyze it, I like to try and work out why I like it in particular. So you asked me to choose a few songs, a few music pieces, which I did, and uh, I decided that, uh, to me, what makes a specific piece extra special? And uh, then I think of that in terms of neurobiology, neuroscience, and, um, as I say, I'm not an expert, but I just think that if you look at all of the music out there, such diverse, different approaches to music, but they all seem to have one thing in common, and that is the end result of doing something to our emotions. So, um, the vast majority of music appeals to our emotions and um, there are different components to music that uh, can stimulate our emotional experience, so whether it's the melody, the lyrics the uh, the harmony, the rhythm uh whatever it is, they combine to conjure up a feeling of great pleasure in me at least in i guess in everybody, so that means that in some way the pleasure centers in our brain are being stimulated so this is a bit off the topic of the snook but um perhaps uh, not so much
0: off the topic if you read the book actually because of the various things you say in the book about how our sensitivities our senses are stimulated by things fast food a whole chapter there for example which we'll come to in a moment so yeah. i th- think it's very much on track what you're saying okay great
1: so, the effect would then involve um, particularly I think our frontal reward systems in the brain, um, which uh, are very much involved in pleasure and motivation and reward, but also other aspects such as our opioid our endogenous opioid system, so we produce our own morphine like substances uh, which gives us pleasure. Uh, Our cannabinoid system, which does similar things. So these are all um, parts of the brain uh, and neurochemistry that actually are stimulated by these songs. So that's a long explanation as to why I
0: choose Ackerbrook and Stranger on the Shore as my (laughs) first choice. I think I'm going to be listening to it now with completely new ears after that introduction. <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> you if will.
1: I could add something. Yes. So the other component that I think is very important in, in enjoying music is um, memory and um, having experienced that particular music previously. So familiarity kind of heightens the, the pleasure of anticipating what's coming next in music. And this song takes me back. This uh, tune takes me back to my medical school days. And there was a there was a band at medical school around my time. This is the late sixties, the early seventies. Uh, and the band was made up of medical students. It was called Louis the Jeep, and uh, nobody remembers the band. But they were phenomenal musicians, and they were way before their time. So instead of the traditional three guitars and, uh, and ba- a drum, they actually had wind instruments, and they wrote their own music. And uh, they uh, actually, at that time, the big uh, competition for bands was Battle of the Bands. And uh, they entered and won the competition. And I think they would have gone on to be great, great musicians, uh, but they didn't. So they went on to become gynecologists and pathologists (laughs) and whatever, and nobody ever heard about them. But the guy who played wind instruments in the band, I remember once listening to him practicing for a a holiday, a vacation job to to earn extra money, and the tune he played on his clarinet was uh, Stranger on the Shore. And I was just taken aback by the fact that this guy who'd been playing heavy rock music sat down and played this incredible song. And uh, since that time, it's, it's been very special to me, and that's exactly what it does. It evokes feelings of pleasure, of almost euphoria when I hear the song.
0: Stranger on the Shore, Ackerbilt there. And the first choice of my guest on People of Note this week, whose name is Robin Emsley, who's just written a book called Snook on the Couch. And the important part there, I think, is on the couch because Robin is a world-renowned psychiatrist specializing in schizophrenia. And, um, Robin, you were talking just with that music how certain parts of your brain are stimulated. One of the things I found interesting in the book is, first of all, that you obviously didn't like snook at the beginning. You said it tasted like, you thought it tasted like shark feces, I think you said. I think the only snook I've ever eaten is snook pate from a well-known supermarket. But you also said that we are in a stage of our lives at the moment where there seem to be more restaurants than ever, offering all sorts of wonderful things, and offering our taste buds and therefore brain cells a curious sort of stimulation that perhaps didn't exist 50 or I mean it must have been there but it's now being played upon isn't it by the commercial world absolutely so uh,
1: I think in the book around the snook and uh, us catching and eating the snook um, I focused on this whole thing around us as a species um, having developed Uh, the function of eating way beyond its original intentions just to satiate our hunger.
0: Mm. Yes, because you also say sometimes you go to a restaurant not actually to quell your hunger, but for the experience of going to the restaurant. Exactly. Where you might not even be hungry. Exactly. So
1: um, in terms of our eating uh, physiology, um, there are two major brain systems that regulate how much we eat and um, the one, the first one is called the homeostatic mechanism and uh, this is, this, is, this operates when we get hungry and we go and uh, ingest food to satisfy that urge and um, the other one is um, more interesting and that is the hedonistic system and this is what we as humans have created over many years uh, to get the maximum enjoyment out of eating. So we've moved way beyond hunger as the stimulus for eating, and it's become very much a, a social uh, function. It's the way we uh, socialize. It's the way we interact Uh, romantically with people it's the way we conduct our business and um, it's this system that has allowed the uh, explosion of the food industry in terms of restaurants with fine quality foods All of these food channels on television, books, recipe books and other books around food. Unlike your book. (laughs) Uh, Yes. So eating's become a big thing and uh, it's not because we're hungry or seldom because we're hungry. It's Mm. more to do with the social context of eating.
0: But the other thing I found quite interesting was the angle you took where you said, you know, we do spend a lot of time trying to save animals and save the fish and save everything. But basically... We kill and eat animals and birds and fish. Mm -hmm. That's what we do, Mm -hmm. rather relentlessly and rather overwhelmingly. Yes.
1: This is the central realization, the central point of this Mm -hmm. book. And it's a very serious thing, and I refer to it as a great injustice. And uh, that's just the realization that, you know, um, we as a species and and a lot of other species, um, in order to survive, we have to catch other animals, kill them, and devour them. That's part of our way of surviving. And that's an awful thing to contemplate, particularly given the way that we place such high value on life, not just on human life, but on you know, our pets uh, and other sentient bee animals. So it's a, it's a terrible, terrible contrast that we have to live with. On the one hand, the need to eat and uh, function, but on the other hand, having to deal with this just unthinkable thing of actually having to um, sacrifice other animals in order to do that. So that's what I refer to as the great injustice, and I uh, explore the ways, some of the ways we deal with this, uh, and some psychological defense mechanisms, and specifically the one we call denial, which is, um, (laughs) he said with a wry smile, (laughs) (laughs) which is a very important uh, mechanism, and it allows us to actually enjoy food and uh, and not focus on these other awful components to what we're doing.
0: Yes, you said, you know, you go into a magnificent restaurant with its beautiful lighting and everything, and have this lovely food presented to you. Meanwhile, in the kitchen, there's bits of body all over the place and entrails pulled out and thrown into the bin and blood everywhere, which we don't see. Yeah,
1: and we choose not to focus on that. We, 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 <laughs> we choose do. to focus on the on the nice parts of, of eating.
0: Let's just take another music uh, break now before I ask you about expressions and smiling, which I found very interesting as well. A whole psychological guide to smiling, whether you or a snook or a human being Uh, Linda Ronstadt is coming up now and a reason for this Robin
1: this particular song Blue Bio uh, Linda Ronstadt well it's just one of those pieces of music that has um, appealed to me greatly Roy Orbison apparently wrote the song initially he sang it very well but it's almost as if he wrote it for Linda Ronstadt it became her signature tune and it just does wonderful things to me when I, when I sit down and listen to this song.
2: I feel so bad I got a worried mind I'm so lonesome all the time Since I left my baby behind on Blue Bayou Saving nickels, saving dimes Working till the sun don't shine Looking forward to happier times long blue by you
0: The voice of Linda Ronstadt. I have not heard her for a long time, Blue Bayou, and the second choice of my guest on People of Note this week here on Fine Music Radio, Robin Emsley, we're talking about his book Snook on the Couch. And if you read this book, you will discover it's not a recipe book on how to cook snook, but will tell you a lot about yourself, life, the earth, evolution, and all sorts of things like that, along with some lovely pictures. One of the chapters I found amazing is called an albino bulbul, this bird, the bulbul. And it gave credence to what you were saying. Your whole point of putting it in was this idea that animals basically are not stupid. They've got some form of perception that we often as humans don't give them granted for. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: Would you like to just explain in your terms what you mean?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. So this was prompted by the uh, the facial expression of the snook which is which is absolutely amazing and it has features that are very human like. I think the most prominent feature are these huge eyes that <laughs> seem to be looking at you. And um I speculate that they look at us with uh, an with an appealing kind of uh, effect and um then started thinking about this snook that has just been caught how traumatic was that and how aware was that snook of that whole process we just tend to think catching fish is great and um, they don't really feel anything they don't experience everything anything and is that actually correct so um, I started thinking about it and as I do most of the time I started accessing information uh, and seeing that uh, self-awareness amongst animals is very much a hot topic in research. And uh, it looks like we have um, underestimated the awareness of other animals grossly. So the snook itself uh, probably has a degree of self-awareness. And then I recalled an experience that I had some years ago when we were on holiday down at Hermanus, and there was this group of birds, Cape bulbuls and one of them was an albino. And uh, I was watching them during the holiday, and this albino bulbul was part of the flock but acted differently. One of the things it did was uh, when the, the rest of the bulbuls landed in a bush... Uh, This one actually came and landed on a cream, a light cream-colored umbrella of ours. And then on another occasion, landed on a white uh, ceramic ornament. Uh, So that got me thinking that this bird must have had some degree of self-recognition, must have realized that it isn't brown and shouldn't go to bushes, but that it's white and needs to protect itself by going to white environments. Uh, Sort of
0: a camouflage, really. Exactly, yes.
1: So it must have had some degree of awareness. And, of course, the literature is full of examples of animals with awareness – elephants, other mammals, and other birds. Um, So I've um, added the Cape Bulbo to the list of uh, animals that have some degree of (laughs) self-awareness.
0: And the snook, as we discovered. Yeah. Because one of the other things about the snook, and I can assure you I don't know much about the snook, or indeed the West Coast, but it's always appeared to me to be a rather ugly fish, and I didn't realize that they bit. Apparently they can give you quite a nasty bite, Mm -hmm. and they've got this odd face, as you said. You mentioned the eyes, but it's this forward protruding jaw, isn't it? And it looks though it's constantly in a scowl somehow. Yes,
1: yes, yeah. That's one of the other features that I focus on, um, the protruding jaw, uh, the look of sadness, but also the protruding jaw may be a sign of uh, stubbornness, and uh, that's what I see in my family as well. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> my wife and children, particularly when I offer them my good advice. Yeah. Uh, the, the jaw seems to protrude progressively more and more.
0: <laughs> but you also said something very funny where you said, who knows, maybe under the sea, in their own environment, maybe it's not quite so much of a scowl. Yeah. When they're wandering around eating other little fish. Yeah. So it's this whole chain, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. And then also talking about expressions and awareness. I find it interesting. One sees this all the time on television and you don't think about it. When an animal is being killed by a lion or a a gull or something is killing one of its partners, there doesn't seem to be a look of pain on the Mm -hmm. victim's face. It's a a look of acceptance. Mm -hmm. And I thought when you see a little, what are those things, an antelope being eaten by a tiger or a lion, Mm -hmm. they don't, they just look as though they're accepting what's going on. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. It's almost as if it's part of nature and part of this acceptance of the the great injustice that mm. they either have to hunt or and one day they're going to be hunted and uh, that's just the way it is yes. and um and, and getting back to the stubborn jaw on on the snook, this is actually fascinating because i kind of tongue in cheek uh, well definitely tongue in cheek uh, speculated as to maybe that indicates that snook uh, are what we would call uh, have obsessive compulsive personalities because stubbornness uh, rigidity is one of the features of, of being precise perfectionistic and that this is something that um, has helped them to survive uh, throughout millions of years because they live in an unchanging environment and I speculated that because the environment is changing so rapidly with climate change, maybe this stubbornness, this obsessive-compulsive approach to things is not going to stand them in good stead. And we need uh, the opposite of that would be people who can easily adapt to changing environments. And I call these the happy-go-luck snook. And uh, so I, I, I wrote about the, um, the happy-go-lucky snook, and that these are the ones that we've been uh, selectively removing from the ocean because they're the ones who will go for the bait when, when they get caught. But to my great surprise, after having written this book, I came across some literature uh, indicating that fish have personalities and that uh, they don't call them obsessive-compulsive and happy-go-lucky snook, but they're called bold fish and shy fish and that any group of fish will have different degrees of boldness and shyness and the the group composition will actually determine the behavior. So in that group they will have some bold fish that are more uh, risk-taking, novelty-seeking and those are the ones who will say there's something to eat, let's go and get it whereas the shy fish, the obsessive-compulsive, cautious fish, will say, no, let's hold back because there may be risks there. So the number of bold and shy fish actually will determine the behavior of them. So my tongue-in-cheek uh, um, contemplation of snook personality is in fact not so far removed no, from reality. <laughs> he must have
0: made you feel good when you saw that paper I did, after the book I did, was published.
1: Yeah. I, I actually, the, the guy who who does a lot of work here is um, an emeritus professor, Robert Elwood from Belfast University. So I actually sent him a copy of my book. I was so surprised and I sent him a copy of a book, but I don't think he knew what to make of this book. <laughs> <laughs> he he kind of diplomatically repo- uh, wrote back to say,
0: I enjoyed your book. Yes, interesting. It's <laughs> <Yes. That's laughs> a word that covers so many problems. Yeah. Bird on a Wire, the Neville Brothers. That's your next choice, Robin. Yes. Is there a reason you've included this one? Just, uh, I love Leonard Cohn's music. Uh, I don't think he's the
1: greatest of singers. And uh, the rendition by the Neville Brothers, I just think is fantastic.
2: Like a bird on the wire Like a drunk in a midnight choir I have tried my way to be free, like a fish on a hook, like a knife from some old-fashioned book, I had stayed for my river, oh.
0: Neville Brothers there that was called Bird on a Wire, Leonard Cohen's song, and it was the third choice of my guest on People of Note on Fine Music Radio this week, Robin Emsley, and we're talking about snook, of all things. You know, Robin, just before we, well, as I began, you said you really didn't like snook and you spoke about sort of bits of it inside it, eating it, just explain it's things that look like veins are actually worms and it's being eaten from the inside. It town. <laughs> absolutely terrible, what you wrote. <laughs> it made me think, I'm never going to try a snook, uh, although you did. Yeah, clearly, yeah. Had.
1: So, you know, I was introduced to the snook when we moved to the West Coast, and everybody raves about this as being a, a wonderful meal, and we, we tried a few, we brought a few, and um, our experience was different, and we just struggled. It was awful, and Then we had heard all of these stories about snookworms and pup snook. So I actually went and read up a bit about them just to see what it was about, because maybe it wasn't actually true, but uh, in fact it is true. They (laughs) say (laughs) the worst thing is a pup snook. A pup snook is terrible and um, a pup snook uh, is caused by what they call a cosmopolitan mixosporian parasite oh which, is a, which is a which a co- is the correct name and it causes a condition of post-mortem myoliquefaction which is just the scientific name for pup snook and um, so it infests the snook and it actually migrates into the muscles to get away from the fish's immune system and then when the fish is caught and dies it releases th- these microspores release a whole lot of proteolytic enzymes that just dissolve the proteins the the muscle so that's what happens and uh, it's not great it's uh, it's not great to know about well, it either no, no.
0: <laughs> but is it then safe to eat it's or? apparently safe to eat um
1: Nobody's actually done any research, I think, to say what the the possible consequences of this are. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is the the fish worms. Uh, And again, uh, I did a little bit of research on this, and they're actually flesh-eating nematodes. And they are apparently more prominent in the months with an R in, which in South Africa are the summer months. Mm -hmm. And... uh, I thought I'd never actually seen one, but in fact uh, I have, and you probably have, and everybody who's eaten snook probably has, because those white, long, stringy things that I used to think were the snook veins—they are apparently the snook worms. So, um, and people who enjoy snook, they're quite happy to eat the snook worms with the snook. <laughs>
0: Right, now here comes a question that you probably don't expect. Just listening to you and having read the book Behaviour and all that is obviously of complete fascination to you which is why you're a psychiatrist. But what... Are you able to explain briefly what your fascination is with schizophrenia?
1: Yes, so in my career I've always uh, enjoyed the research component. Um, uh, I just think I'm... Inquisitive, curious, and uh, I, I enjoy research. And in the field of psychiatry, I think the the greatest challenge, and in fact, one of the great medical challenges today, medical science challenges, is understanding schizophrenia because it's a very misunderstood uh, illness. It's a very serious, severe... And it has a stigma attached to it. A great stigma. Yeah. And it's puzzling, and it's, you know, it, it just to try and provide some kind of logical explanation to the symptoms that people with this illness experience is very difficult. And and that's why I chose to focus on schizophrenia as probably the most uh, disabling of all of the psychiatric illnesses.
0: And this is what's taken you sort of almost around the world, hasn't it? Because may I say you're really at the top of your, your game, so to speak. So, yes, I've,
1: I've had uh, the good fortune to be doing research at the time of great development with with technology advancing and also pharmacology, you know, Mm. a whole lot of new treatments that have come through and that's where we've been involved in in assessing new treatments. And as a consequence, uh, I've had uh, the opportunity to present that work uh, all over the world, just about. And, and that's been fantastic.
0: But your base is Stellenbosch, isn't it? That's the University of Stellenbosch is your base. That's right.
1: That's, that's where we conduct the research.
0: Are you mostly a research person or do you do uh, therapy sessions? Do you y- do the couch thing? Yeah, yeah. Since what you plan. call this book on the couch.
1: My, my prime interest is, is research. So I started out as a clinician and then at an early age I, I actually moved into management. I became the head of the Department of Psychiatry for 24 years. And I decided then that I would like to end my career doing what I enjoy most. And then I managed to get this research chair specifically for research in schizophrenia. So that's been absolutely wonderful. And it's given me and the people that I work with an opportunity to, to do cutting-edge research uh, in this field.
0: But you do see patients regularly. So
1: I, I don't see patients regularly. The patients that I see are the ones that are involved in our clinical trials. I saw patients for many years, Mm -hmm. but but these days I focus just on the research.
0: It's fascinating, therefore, Robin, that after this research and everything you did, you still gave yourself the task, which must have been a bit of a task, of writing a book about the snook, and, uh, you know, comparing it to life's great problems and what you call it, the great injustice. And it is, I can assure you, a fascinating read, but... Where did you get it from? You said it's not really available in bookshops. So how do people get hold of it if they want to clamor to read your psychological <laughs> analysis of a snook?
1: Yeah, so it's it's a limited edition, and uh, it, I didn't go the normal publication route. And it's available online. So anybody who's interested, uh, the best thing to do is just Google snook on the couch and publishing print matters. Uh, They're the people who who, who are doing it. It'll cost 275 rands plus postage, which will be about 50 rands. And uh, I have to say that the whole thing about this Snookbook is it was a hobby. It's a hobby of mine. I enjoyed writing it. It took a long time, but I enjoyed it. And I um, decided that um, I would like to... Any any profits that I made from the book, I would like to use to create... Uh, a research fellowship, specifically for somebody to to research the snook and better ways of catching and marketing the snook to the benefit of the West Coast snook fishermen, because these are people who really struggle these days, uh, impoverished, and uh, one thing that really bugs me is that our supermarkets don't use local snook so they actually import snook the the snook that you buy at our supermarkets comes from new zealand
0: oh my goodness
1: and uh, that seems ridiculous it does it it just doesn't seem right and the reason apparently is that the, the the quality of the imported snook is 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 better so maybe if we could look at ways of improving the quality of our own snook it would stimulate the, the whole SNCC industry. And this is
0: where the proceeds of this book will go.
1: And th- that's what I'd like to do, specifically to, to find some young PhD, aspirant PhD researcher who could make this a project and, and
0: do it. Well, hold thumbs for that. Thank you. Robin, before your last piece of music, I'm going to read what you said right at the end here because now this is the... You had to formulate a diagnosis. The diagnosis is the snook post-traumatic stress disorder and major depression with underlying obsessive-compulsive personality traits. That is your psychiatric uh, summation of the snook. That's right. And you still don't like eating it. I still don't
1: like eating it, and uh, (laughs) I still feel very sorry for the snook that gets caught like that.
0: Okay, well, thanks for an an unusual and interesting conversation, Robin. And you're also in my good books now because you've chosen one of my favorite popular songs to end Dream a Little Dream of Me with the Mamas and the Papas. Is there a reason you chose this?
1: Just, it's a wonderful song, and uh, Mama Cass uh, must be one of the best singers of all
0: time. Robin Emsley, thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much.
4: me while i'm alone and blue as can be dream a little dream Whatever